Look at Jeremiah chapter 7. I've already covered the first 16 verses with you, but I want you to go to verse 4. Trust. Jeremiah 7, 4. Trust. Remember what I taught you this morning. Everything you do shows trust. You are trusting you'll not get caught when you sin. You are trusting God doesn't see it. You are trusting God doesn't care. You are trusting God will overlook that sin because I have so many other good areas. You are trusting something or you wouldn't sin. Trust. What are you trusting tonight? I am trusting that there is only one way to live, and it's by the Word of God. And I want you to trust that same way. I want to be the wise man that planted his house and built his house upon a rock. And that rock was the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the storms of life can come and beat against that house, and it will stand. But what are you trusting tonight? These people were trusting in lying words. And the only reason we sin is because we've got some trust that came from the devil. He is the father of all lies. He is a liar. There is no truth in him. And he tells us a lie to get us to sin. That we, whatever the excuse is, it's a lie. Don't trust in it. And so the warning from this Jeremiah chapter 7 is, Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord are these. They were taking confidence in the fact that they had the temple of God. And they did. They were taking confidence that they had the priests of God, and they did. But that temple and those priests and the sacrificial system and everything else they had was not of value if they were going to disobey. God considers the solemn assemblies of Israel to be a stench in his nostril if you come with sin in your heart. Isaiah chapter 1, he calls the rulers and people of Israel and Judah Sodom and Gomorrah. Because though they came and kept his holy days, and though they worshipped him with sacrifices, they had blood on their hands. And he told them, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. And that's what we're trying to do with Jeremiah chapter 7, is to reason, the Lord's reasoning with us. Don't lie to yourselves. Just because you have the truth, just because you have the word of God, just because you have a church, just because you have a pastor, just because your parents believe on Jesus Christ, just because you've been baptized, none of that matters. Unless we're going to humble ourselves before his word and obey it. This is the form of godliness that is rampant in our day. They go to church. They take communion. You have bread and wine. You're baptized. You get wet. And you think that you're a Christian. It's commonplace in our nation. If you were to go down the street and take a survey, you'd be shocked at how many people are Christians in America. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof, the authority of God to dictate their lives. And we want to fight against that. I believe that is the number one danger facing this church and what all ministers ought to be preaching in this country in this year. It is the false brand of Christianity warned about in 2 Timothy chapter 3. There is no other danger even close to it. It certainly isn't Islam. No one in here is tempted to become a Muslim. If you are, you're beyond hope. You're beyond hope. You know, we don't need to worry about World War III. 
We don't need to worry about an economic collapse. We don't need to worry about any of the things that many people call perilous. We need to worry about a false brand of Christianity where we go through the form, but we are not living according to his word and letting his authority determine our lives. That is the message of Jeremiah 7. It's just another way for me to preach 2 Timothy chapter 3 without using it. But the Lord gave it to me. At 7.15 last night, I don't know where, there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. It just came out of space. And I don't say that disrespectfully at all. It came from, I had not referenced that chapter. It didn't have anything to do with what I was studying all week, what I was studying that day. And the Lord wants us to have this chapter. As soon as I read it, I knew knew why it had come into my mind. I don't look for visions and I don't go watch the underbelly of caterpillars to try to figure out what I should preach. But sometimes the Lord will cause a particular subject to just dry up. And it just dries up and I'm left helpless. And then something else comes into my mind and I read it. Wow, this says it better than what I was studying. That's why you got Jeremiah 7 today. Let's go to verse 17, where where the Lord is telling Jeremiah to take a look around and see what he sees. Verses 1 through 16 are a section in themselves. They're the words that Jeremiah is to give to those people. Now we come to verse 17, the Lord speaking to Jeremiah. Seest thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? Having given such a strong condemnation for their actions in the first 16 verses, now the Lord tells Jeremiah, listen, I'm, I'm not being that extreme. Just take a look around. These are my people. They come into my house and they pretend that they're trying to worship me, but look at what they're doing. The wickedness of Judah was flagrant. And so it is in the, in the false brand of Christianity in our country. There, there's no shame. There's no shame. So many churches that call themselves Christians justifying same-sex marriages and having lesbians and sodomites in their pulpits and in their membership. I mean, we, and we, I could go on and on and on and on with examples of flagrant, gross sins in our country among those that call themselves Christians. And so the Lord says to Jeremiah, just take a look around, look what they're doing. And so we come to the 18th verse. The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead their dough. Well, this looks like a warm and fuzzy family time, doesn't it? It looks like quality family time. And don't we have a holiday coming up shortly where the the whole world gets so warm and fuzzy about it that all of Christianity is now keeping it in our country except a few strange ones like this little church. They are the ones that have changed. 200 years ago, it was a crime to celebrate Christmas on December 25th in this country. You would be fined for celebrating that holiday. And they accuse us of being strange? We are the ones that are holding the apostolic Christian position that anything that comes out of Rome is pagan. And they all knew it back then. Christmas is a pagan holiday. There's nothing Christian about it. It's not even Christian in name because it's a mass. And a mass isn't Christian. A mass is a sacrifice on an altar. And our Savior has already made his sacrifice 2,000 years ago, and I could go on and on. But that's not my purpose. But I want you to remember that they will sometimes sell pagan religion with the warm and fuzzy feelings that it gives families. Women get all worked up 
about the warm and fuzzy feeling of sitting in a dark living room with their bale mass tree in the corner with little lights flickering on it, having put, every gi- having put gifts under every green tree in direct violation of the word of God and doing it at the winter solstice and think that they're honoring Jesus. It's because women are weaker vessel. It, women were taken advantage of by Satan in the Garden of Eden, and they are moved by warm and fuzzy events for the family. When what we've got to do is measure everything by the Word of God. Amen. And whether it's popular or not, we don't care. I get warm and fuzzy feelings from reading and preaching and hearing you love the Word of God. Amen. When you get up and give thanksgivings to the great God of heaven, I get warm and fuzzy feelings. That's as, much, that's as much of a warm and fuzzy feeling as I want. My heart's rejoicing when I hear my brother back there enjoying number 26 in our hymnals. Come thou fount of every blessing. He's doing exactly what the New Testament says we ought to be doing, teaching and admonishing one another. And I hear him teaching and admonishing me and it rejoices my heart. Let's stick to the word of God. The children were involved, the fathers were involved, and the women were kneading their dough. And what were they doing? They were making cakes to the Queen of Heaven. Now, the Queen of Heaven today is Mary. Mary's been called the Queen of Heaven for a long time, but 1954, Pope Pius XII made a proclamation that she would be considered formally and officially the Queen of Mary. But this is not the Queen of Mary way back here in the year 550 B.C., Way back here, this is Ashtaroth, the god of the Phoenicians, a god representing the, represented by the moon and by the planet Venus, the female principle in life, the receptive principle, the queen of heaven, the Phoenicians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and the Greeks all worshipped her under different names. And so here the children of Israel are getting together for family time, and instead of putting up the tree in the corner... They make some cakes, and they offer them to the queen of heaven, which is a gross idolatry, and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods that they may provoke me to anger. Now notice what the Lord says about that. He says that what they're doing provokes him to anger, but then in the very next verse he says, do they provoke me to anger? Are they really doing anything that hurts me? Are they really upsetting my government of the world? No, saith the Lord. Do they not provoke themselves to the confusion of their own faces? What they're doing isn't really hurting me. It's going to destroy them. It's going to destroy them. They are so confident and so bold now to be doing such flagrant acts of idolatry right in the city of Jerusalem, and I'm going to take them away captive and destroy their city, and their works are going to be to their own confusion of face. And how many will be confused when they see Jesus Christ someday and they want to tell him about all the wonderful Christmases they had for him? Enough about that. Let's move on. Verse 20, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, mine anger and my fury shall be poured out upon this place, upon man and upon beast and upon the trees of the field and upon the fruit of the ground. And it shall burn and shall not be quenched. It is not popular to talk about a God that gets furiously angry. But here in Jeremiah 7.20, the Lord says, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out upon this place. And we're not talking about him pouring it out upon pagans. His own people. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 30, The Lord shall judge his people. 
And so the warning here is of God's great anger coming upon this place, even though they worshipped in the house of God, because they went to that house of God, lying to themselves, that because they had the house, and because they went to worship, they could basically live any way they chose, which is exactly what we're facing today. The perilous times of the last days. We have a form of godliness, but every man lives according to that which is right in his own eyes, instead of the authority of the word of God dictating how he lives. Notice, every man, every beast, and the fruit of the ground, which is the means of production, the means of survival, was going to be destroyed by this God who was going to leave them utterly helpless, hopeless, desolate. His judgment was going to be great. The fire would burn, and it, should, it would not be quenched. There was no man going to stop this judgment. That you were not going to protect yourself against this judgment unless you repented and amended your ways, which we saw over there in verses 3 and 5, truly amend your ways and your doings, to please the Lord. Verse 21, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Irony in the Bible. Sarcasm in the Bible. Watch this. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel. Put your burnt offerings unto your sacrifices and eat flesh. Burnt offerings were just that. They were burned up. You didn't eat them. Peace offerings, you got some of the meat so that you could take it home and eat it. But the Lord says, just put your burnt offerings with your peace offerings and your other sacrifices and go ahead and eat flesh. You might as well get something for all of your sacrificing. You might as well at least get a full belly because it's not doing a thing for me. This is irony. He's mocking them. He's sarcastically telling them to go offer their sacrifices and they might as well eat them because they're not getting any spiritual value of pleasing him. You can, you'll see it from the next few verses. For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. And walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. That is the religion of God. Now look at in verse 22 it says that I did not command your fathers in the, when I brought them out of Egypt about sacrifices. What? When I read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, I see a whole lot of sacrifices being written about. Right. Don't you? Amen. Or do I have a different Bible? Do I have the same Bible that Isaiah and Jeremiah had? Yep. But it says that in verse 22, I did not teach your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. And he's expecting you to put a sense upon these words, and I'm going to help you by putting a sense on it. What did he tell Saul when he came to King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, and King Saul had saved the best of the Amalekite flocks and said, I was going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord? What did God say to him? To obey is better than sacrifice, and that's exactly what these words are teaching. He is exaggerating the point for you to get the lesson that my, the, real ele, the real element and essence of my religion that I taught your fathers was not all the ordinances of, of burnt offerings and sacrifices, but it was the obedience of what I commanded. Here you're coming, keeping a few of the ordinances of sacrifices and burnt offerings, but you're not avoiding theft, adultery, murder, false witnessing, idols, offering incense to Baal, and all the other sins that we've had listed. 
in the first part of this chapter. Do you follow that? Amen. He's mocking them. He's using irony. Irony is saying the opposite of what you intend, and it's a very powerful form of speech. He doesn't want them to go make more sacrifices. He's mocking their sacrificial efforts at pleasing him. The real key to the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ and the religion of God, it hasn't changed as far as its key element, it's obedience. If you love me, keep my commandments. Old Testament, if you love me, obey what I've commanded. The the, The sacrifices and the burnt offerings are secondary. He wants, first of all, what? A poor, the man that comes poor with a contrite spirit and trembles before my word, that's the man that I will meet with. Notice there's not a thing in there about sacrifices. It's the heart condition that's first, then sacrifices. They had it out of order. They were doing the sacrifices with a horrible heart condition. I preached nine sermons about Christianity and the Bible being God's true and only religion in the earth. Once we're established on that fact, we must look for the essential elements of that religion from the Bible. I establish that the Bible is the Word of God. Now, what does the Bible say to us? That the essential element is our heart, attitude, and obedience. That we are willing to do everything God said. Then He will accept sacrifices. But the true sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart, O God. Thou wilt not despise. Psalm 51. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 7, Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, Old Testament, New Testament, it's the same. That essential element is mercy, judgment, treating others rightly, obeying me is more important than the outward form of keeping the ordinances. Verse 24, I told them to obey. Look at verse 23 and the promises that are in it. Obey my voice, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. And walk in all my ways that I've commanded you, and it will be well with you. But look what, look what they did in verse 24. They hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. They backslid. They went away from God. They turned away from Him, because the imagination of their heart lied to them. The lies that we studied in the first half. It lied to them that they could get away with living any way they wanted and still have God on their side. And that is carnal Christianity. And it's going backward. It's backsliding. And we ought to be going forward. Going forward is growing in grace, brethren. Right. We've got to be pressing forward and going forward. We want to be more and more in obedience and in compliance with His wonderful commandments. They're not a burden, they're a blessing. They save us, they give us happiness. Happy is the people whose God is the Lord. And I'm not quoting Benny Hinn. I'm quoting the Word of God. Happy is the people whose God is the Lord. And we're going to see it in the last verse of this chapter. That happiness is taken away by God when we will not obey Him. Look at the happiness that is offered and the blessings that are offered in verse 23, but they would not. They wanted to walk after the counsels of their own heart. And they went backward, not forward. God, save us from backsliding. Since the day that your fathers came forth, this is verse 25, since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early 
and sending them. Yet they hearkened not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. It is no fault on the part of God about this judgment that came upon Judah. God had done his part, and God said here that he had sent all the way from the time of their fathers, pushing a thousand years. He had sent all of his servants, the prophets, to warn them, but they would not listen to those prophets, and they hardened their neck. Rebellion. I want to remind you of a verse I quoted a couple times this morning. Proverbs 29 and 1. He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, like these, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. That is a frightening verse. Amen. If you fear the word of God and tremble before it at all, that is a frightening verse. Every time we are in the house of the Lord, and we hear a sermon, we hear a sermon. You and me. We hear a sermon. That is being reproved by the God of heaven. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. I'm warning you from God. I'm warning me from the Lord. Let us be careful to humble ourselves and to amend our ways lest he judge us with irremediable judgment. Verse 27, Therefore thou shalt speak all these words unto them, but they will not hearken to thee. Thou shalt also call unto them, but they will not answer thee. But thou shalt say unto them, here's the summary judgment. This is a nation that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction. Truth is perished and is cut off from their mouth. There is nothing good in them anymore. They have chosen their own ways and their own imaginations rather than truth, and it is cut off from their mouth. This is God's summary judgment. It's over. Don't pray for them as we read in verse 16, and here he's saying, though you're going to warn them, they are not going to hear, they are not going to answer, they're not going to respond, because truth has been cut off from their lips. I am now judging them a nation like the other nations that will not obey the voice of the Lord their God. I want to point out three little words in there, nor receiveth correction. Nor receiveth correction. The true mark of wisdom a great man, a wise man, a godly man, a man like the Lord Jesus Christ, receives correction. You love to hear sermons that correct you. You love to be told things that you are doing wrong so that you can do them differently, do them right. right. They would not receive correction. The book of Proverbs is written to tell us that the man who receives correction, and when he's told to do something differently, he does it, wise man. The man who gets angry at the person telling him to do something differently is the fool. That's the book of Proverbs in a nutshell. A wise man wants to be corrected. The only way there can ever be progress is change. The only way there can be change is to tell you that the way you're doing it is wrong and you've got to do it a different way. Do you know what that does to all of us? It just grinds us. Yep. It just grind, it grinds us. But brethren, a man who is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles before God's word, he is waiting for that word to correct him. Right. He's poor. I want, to be, I want to be rich. I'm poor in spirit. Teach me. Show me. Amen. And he trembles with fear before the word of God. Verse 29. Here's what they ought to do. 
There is no salvation for them, because God has purposed to judge them. Cut off thine hair, O Jerusalem, and cast it away, and take up a lamentation on high places, for the Lord hath rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. We love the words, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, don't we? Are those words an unconditional promise to never leave us nor forsake us as long as we walk in this earth? They are not. They are a conditional promise, but it's not a hard conditions. It's a conditional promise to us that as long as we're obeying him, he will not leave us nor forsake us. He had promised never to leave his people, but they would not obey. And so notice here, they were to cut off their hair. Remember what Job did? When all those things happened to Job, it says he shaved his head. One of the ways you showed your great grief was to shave your head and to go mourning for your transgressions and to take up a lamentation on high places because the Lord had rejected these people, the generation of his wrath. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, saith the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. They had even taken some of their inventions into the house of God. And do we have inventions in the Lord's house today? Remember, there's a whole two sermons preached, and I didn't do justice to the subject that's in the outline, contemporary Christianity, so many inventions stuck into the churches of Jesus Christ today. And because they had done that and done evil in the sight of God, he was saying, go ahead and cut off your hair and start lamenting the horrible judgment that's coming on your nation and on your generation. What else did they do that was horrible? Verse 31, they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. Tophet, a word from a Hebrew word, tof. You just look it up in an English dictionary. I don't care what a Hebrew dictionary says. It's a dead language. But the English language picked up a word called tof, which is a Hebrew word, and changed into tophet, which describes the drums of that place. The drums, mothers... What were they for? What were the percussion instruments for? The drums were to cover the screaming of your little baby boys and your little baby girls as they were burning in the red-hot arms of Moloch, the god, the god of the Ammonites and the Moabites. This is what they had done. Now, how does a nation fall down so far? By not amending your ways. Because when God withdraws his presence and forsakes a people, they're capable of anything. And they were burning. Their own sons and their own daughters, little girls, were being burned. And mothers would stand there and the noise of their screaming children would be drowned out by the drums of that place. They have built the high places of Tophet. And God never commanded such a thing, neither came it into his heart. There was no approval in God whatsoever for such a thing. That does not mean that God and his eternal government of all the events of all men had not purposed that such a wicked thing would occur out of the wickedness and depravity of their hearts. But it had never come into his heart for them to do it by his revelation or to add to his worship by considering such a thing. Never. Never. Listen, is there wrath when you burn your children? Are you showing a horrible understanding of wrath the bible says surely the wrath of man shall praise thee in the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain the point that i'm making right now is that this event did not occur outside the government of the holy god right. 
God governs the events of all men at all times in every way. And he restrains all their wrath from doing anything that will not work to his own praise and glory. But I want to tell you something. When you choose to be unthankful, let's take something simple. You choose to be unthankful, God turns you over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. You're blessed like the nation of Israel was and you don't want to obey him and keep his commandments when he's promised to be your God. He will turn you over to a reprobate mind where you will take your children and offer them in the fire to a false God. That's where it came from. That's the judgment of a holy God. And it's most fitting. He didn't make them do it. They wanted to do it because of the depravity of their own hearts that he let run wild because they didn't want to obey him. Verse 32. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be called Tophet, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they shall bury in Tophet till there be no place. He says there's going to be an event that takes place in this valley that's going to give occasion for it to be renamed. Not that it necessarily was renamed. It's still known as the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But there's going to be an event there that's going to be significant enough that it could be renamed. And it would be renamed the Valley of Slaughter. There would be so many dead bodies out of the city of Jerusalem that they wouldn't be able to get them all on the ground. This is the word of the Lord to his people who wanted to come to his house to worship him, but they didn't want to amend their ways and their doings. This is what he has to say to them. Verse 33, And the carcasses of this people shall be meat for the fowls of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and none shall fray them away. There'll be piles and mountains of dead bodies laying outside this city in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, and there would be no one there to shoo or to scare the birds away that would come to pick on their dead bodies, which is the least kindness that you can do to dead bodies, is to try to scare the birds away that are picking at their flesh and eating their eyeballs out. And none shall fray them away. None shall scare those birds away, but those birds are going to eat the inhabitants of this city who did not want to amend their ways and worship me with true hearts. This is the word of the Lord. This isn't my word. This is the word of the Lord. And it's the word to, is to us. I've shown you so many things about my word. I've shown you so many things about myself and I've revealed myself to you. Will you obey me? If you'll obey me, I'll be your God and you can be my people. Right. If you'll follow in all the commandments I've given you, it'll go well with you. Right. Remember verse 23? Yeah. That's what he offers. But notice what happens. When they do not obey him, verse 34, then will I cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride for the land shall be desolate. There'll be no one left. Our nation deserves this judgment. May God have mercy upon it. Let us pray and let us labor that our church does not deserve this and your families, and your soul. God can forsake your soul in this life and leave you without the fellowship of his presence when you turn your back on him by not amending your ways. And that means you could still continue to come every service and be here and participate with us. But if your heart is not in the matter, you are not pleasing the Lord. 
the Lord wants a religion of the heart, then of the sacrifices that we can bring. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 144 so that I can read you the verses, a few of the verses that I began with 18 months ago, 20 months ago. Did you see what the judgment was in the last verse of Jeremiah 7? I'll take away the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness. I'll take away all the happiness. Do you know what Jerusalem was? Jerusalem was his city. Do you know what Jerusalem was like when they were walking with the Lord? It was full of mirth. It was full of gladness. There was my David dancing with all his might before the Ark of the Covenant. They loved the Lord in the city of Jerusalem. When Solomon offered up those sacrifices to dedicate his temple, it was a glorious place. And God was there and the people were happy and portions were sent from the king's table to feed them all. And they rejoiced with great joy and great celebration. But it was all taken away and they were left hopeless and desolate like Lot in the mouth of that cave for playing with sin and not amending their ways even though they went to the house of the Lord and tried to worship the Lord there because they didn't do it with pure hearts. Brethren, that is not what we want. What we want is something far better than that. We want to amend our ways and have the Lord be our God and us be His people and for Him to bless us so that it will go well with us. Remember, we want to pray for the Lord to rid us and deliver us, in verse 11, from the hand of strange children whose mouth speaketh vanity and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Brethren, does that verse mean anything to you from Jeremiah 7? Amen. Am I helping you at all? All of Jeremiah 7 can be poured into verse 11. We do not want anyone like verse 11 in this assembly. Anyone in verse 11 are those that are like Jeremiah chapter 7. They're the ones that come to the house of the Lord, and they come appearing to worship, but their right hand is falsehood, and their mouth speaketh vanity. Their words and their motions are not sincere. And we want to pray that God will deliver us from them so that we have no one in here that falls into the category of carnal Christian or of those in Jeremiah 7 that were trusting in lying words and would not amend their ways. This is what we want as a result of the Lord purging us, starting at home and then purging our assembly, that our sons may be as plants growing up in their youth, that our daughters may be as cornerstones, polished after the similitude of a palace, that our garners may be full, affording all manner of store, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets, that our oxen may be strong to labor, that there be no breaking in nor going out, that there be no complaining in our streets. Happy is that people that is in such a case. Yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. God is your Lord when you amend your ways and your doings so that they all please Him. Then the Lord is your God. May the Lord bless this church to be that kind of a church where all we have are those that are like that.